Grab your Bibles, if you will, and open them to Genesis 41 with me. Let me read you, um, beginning at verse 46, we'll read to the end of the chapter. Genesis 41, at verse 46, you follow in your copies of God's Word. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly, and he gathered up all the food of these seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, and put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea, until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Azaneth, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The second, the, the name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come. As Joseph had said, there was famine in all the lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph. What he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians. For the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain. Because the famine was severe over all the earth. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God, that endures forever. I know of no other place in the entire Old Testament where the gospel is so clearly preached, so clearly taught, as you find it right here in Genesis 41 that I just read you. Actually, that's, that's really my first point. You know, guys, I know if, if you're a Christian, if you're a Christian here this morning, you see it. That is, you see the gospel in that little story. That go to Joseph. <laughs> and uh, even Pharaoh saying, don't come to me. Go to Joseph. A, a famished land being, um, being fed by Joseph. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's so clear, it's almost laughable. It's... Um, it's such a picture, this story that I just read, this portion of the story, it's such a picture of, of um, such a prefigurement of, of what men need to do today and, and, and what we're telling them they need to do today. You know, because it is, because it is so clear, um, 
there's got to be, there's just got to be a mastermind behind it whole, the whole thing. Um, 4,000 years before the life of Christ, an event occurs that so clearly parallels and, and points to the, to the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. For me, um, I don't know about the rest of you, but for me, in a roundabout kind of way, this story is a proof of inerrancy. Now, if you can't go quite that far, um, at least you could say there's got to be a genius behind this book who put it together in such a way that there is a story that occurs 4,000 years before the entrance of the Son of Man. And the story 4,000 years ago so clearly points to what happens 4,000 years later. It's rather enchanting, I think. Um, to, to make my case, that is, of clarity, that, that how clear this is, I want you to look at a few things with me in, in the text. Um, let's start in verse 46. Joseph was 30 years old. When he entered the service of Pharaoh the king. <laughs> How about that? Joseph starts his ministry at 30 years old. Just like Jesus. Um, Joseph dispenses bread to starving people. And you know, Jesus did that later, described in John 6. And you notice also, also in verse 46 that he went out, Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh. Just like Jesus went out from the, the presence of his father. Look at verse 49. Um, and Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea until the, uh, he ceased to measure it for it could not be measured. There's no shortage in supply. In fact, the word is immeasurable. It, it just couldn't be measured. Just like, just like what Jesus offers. An, an infinite supply of, of love and mercy and forgiveness and grace. How about verse 54? Uh, and the seven years of famine had, uh, began to come, as Joseph said. There, uh, there was famine in all the lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. My, 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 through the efforts of one man, a, 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 a worldwide disaster is, is averted. Just like Jesus. And then, just one more. Um, verse 57. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt. That is, Joseph meets a, a worldwide need. Just like Jesus. No matter what your nationality was, if you showed up for bread, you got it. You got fed. If you, no matter what your racial or national background was, it didn't matter. You showed up over Jesus, over Joseph's place, and he fed you. Now, gang, that's my case for clarity. Um. It's Joseph, Joseph, Joseph. I don't care where you came from. Go to Joseph. I don't want to hear that you were a part. Go to Joseph. I don't want to know anything. Just go to Joseph, would you? 
The purpose of this famine was to drive people to Joseph. Just like the struggle that perhaps you might be in presently, which is certainly different, but whatever struggle or complexity you find yourself, it's designed. It's designed to drive you to Jesus. For heaven's sake, go to Jesus. There is no other name given under heaven by which men shall be saved, except that name, Jesus. You know, you you have to work at missing this to miss it. But by no means am I suggesting that that everyone sees it or gets it. Um, They didn't get it then. They don't get it now. Not everybody got it there. Not everybody gets it here. So how does one miss it? In, In all of its clarity, in all of its specificity, how does one not see it? What blinds people to spiritual truth? And that's really my second point. My my first point has to do with just the the clarity of the gospel being preached here. But then secondly, if it is so clear as I say it is, how in the world do people miss it? What happens? Well, that's addressed in the text, and and I want to show you that. But understand, that's what I'm trying to figure out. I say it is abundantly clear. And with just a little help from the pulpit, you, I think you as a believer saw it too. But then why do people not see it? What happens? Well, I think the text um, helps us to answer that question. I want to show it to you. I want to begin in verse 55, um, where you find these words. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, oh, no, no, not me. Go to Joseph. He says to you, do. But I want you to notice in the text what it says. It says, when all the land of Egypt was very hungry. No, I didn't say that. When all the land of Egypt had missed three days meals. He doesn't say that either. It says, when all of Egypt was famished, then she came. Not before. Not when she was hungry, mind you, but when she was famished. Not until she had come to an end of her own resources did she come. Guys, you know, when when you're hungry, you go into the backyard and you scratch around in the dirt in the backyard and you try to raise your own crop. But when you're famished, you head straight to Joseph. You don't walk, you don't skip, you run. And there's, there's nothing that can stop you from getting there because you're famished. Now, gang, um, what was it that kept them from, from famishment? Now, um, I just made that word up. But I just, what is it that, that kept them from going so long? I mean, what is it that, that kept them from the arriving? What prevented these people from arriving at a stage of famishment? That's not a word. I just, what, what stopped them? The text tells you. The answer is found right there. It's, it's in verse 49. Why didn't they go? 
Well, because there's a lot of grain and great abundance and like the sand of the sea and, and, and they couldn't measure it because there's just a bunch of it. And ladies and gentlemen, it was their prosperity that had blinded them. Blinded them to the point that when the famine finally occurred, nobody was prepared for it. There was universal unpreparedness. Because you see, men have to come to the end of their own resources before they ever go to Joseph. Now guys, here's the, uh, here's the punchline. In that regard, whatever, whatever it is that prevents you from recognizing your need, that's an enemy. Success, prosperity, wealth. You know, because, because they're such deceivers. Those things are such deceivers, guys. Um, do you remember the name John Kenneth Galbraith? I mean, if you took uh, an econ class in high school or college, you remember John Kenneth Galbraith. He said this, just one little quick sentence. He says, wealth, in even the most improbable cases, um, manages to convey the aspect of intelligence. <laughs> it doesn't make any difference how you got it. I mean, you could have a, 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 a franchise of, of uh, strip joints. And uh, you could just make a fortune with, uh, you know, selling drugs. It doesn't matter how you got it, says Galbraith. He says, because wealth, in the most improbable of cases, manages to convey the aspect of intelligence. You got it? That means somehow you're in... You're more intelligent than the rest. A meteoric rise to wealth, like, like, like winning the lottery, makes people forget that they've got any needs. You know, there's a quote that I love to quote, and I've quoted it here before, but I haven't in a long time. It's a C.S. Lewis quote. Um, and it comes from his book, Screwtape Letters. If you've never read Screwtape Letters, anybody can understand Screwtape Letters. Get a hold of it. It's, it's, um, it's, it's, it's genius. Do you remember Screwtape Letters? Screwtape Letters is a book. Screwtape is the devil. And he has a nephew whose name is Wormwood. Don't you love that name? Wormwood. Anyway, his nephew's up on earth. And it's Wormwood's job to usher a certain Englishman down to his safely home to his father below. And so Screwtape writes letters to Wormwood, trying to help him out, you know, and make sure that he does his job well. And in one of those letters that Screwtape writes to Wormwood, Screwtape says this. Listen to this. Fix his mind on the stream of things and call that reality. But never let him ask what reality really is. Just get his attention on the stream of things. And, uh, you know, let him call that the reality. 
But don't let him ever ask. Don't let him stop long enough. Don't let him have enough need so that his, that he's aroused to examine what he calls reality. Because were he to examine it, oh my, we might lose him, says Scrutate. You know, guys, um, that's what blinds people to spiritual truth. Good times. Too much. Too much resource. You know, gang, why is it that, generally speaking, the poor always respond to the gospel more eagerly? Why is it that today the greatest gains for Christianity are being had in Africa, in China, and in South America? Why is that, you think? (laughs) It's because no one has to convince them of their need. Prosperity hasn't deluded them into thinking. That I don't have any need like them. <laughs> you know, guys, it doesn't make any difference what lie you believe. I mean, um, because that's, that's Satan's stock and trade. Lies. He's the father of them. And he tells a young Muslim lad in, in uh, Southeast Asia that if he is killed in the midst of slaughtering infidels, he goes to heaven. Ain't that stupid? <laughs> Isn't that the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard? <laughs> but it doesn't make any difference what lie you believe. If you believe the lie that wealth whispers into your ears, you're really more intelligent than the rest. It's just as bad as the one to the Muslim. It's going to have the same result. It's going to convince you that because you've somehow made it, that you don't have any needs. And why do I need to go to Joseph? (laughs) Why do I need to do that? Guys, listen to me. Famishment. There's that word again that I made up. Famishment is your friend. And anything that stops you from being famished is your enemy. Going to Joseph didn't require intelligence. It didn't require connections or rank or status or wealth or uh, a fat portfolio. It only required someone who had a rich awareness of their own sense of need and then took what Jesus, uh, Joseph was offering. Need has a way of turning, turning people's heads towards Joseph. And my friend, if you have no needs, I feel sorry for Because you might simply be dupe enough to believe that because you have, you don't need Joseph. 
Gang, there is no greater hardness than the hardness of the heart that says, I don't need him. And the thing that, in our world, (laughs) the thing that tends to produce that, that hardness, is our wealth. And I ain't going to Joseph until I'm famished. And it's going to be a long time for us to ever be famished. Because we can keep writing checks. Guys, it's a dangerous thing. Um, it's the thing that blinds people from seeing how clear this is. Let me mention a couple others. But the, the two that I want to mention now, they're, they're not in our text per se, but they're certainly in the story. The story of Joseph, so kind of bear with me. Um... Whatever became of Potiphar's wife? You remember Potiphar's wife? Uh, she's never given a name in, in, the, in the text. She's just called Potiphar's wife. Potiphar was, a, was an officer in the Egyptian military. And when Joseph arrived as a late teenager, 17, 18, 19, something like that, when he arrived as a slave in Egypt, Potiphar bought him brought Joseph into his home and made him a household slave. So he did such a good job that Potiphar put him over everything in the house. All of my household affairs, uh, Joseph runs them. So Potiphar goes off to work one day and Potiphar's wife, nameless, tries to seduce this handsome, strapping teenage boy. And she says, I didn't write this. This might embarrass some of you. It doesn't embarrass me. She says, come lie with me. Joseph refuses and says, no, no, no. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to sin to this great wickedness before God. I'm not going to do this. But she continues day after day after day after day. And finally, on one occasion, she grabs him by his shirt and tries to drag him into the bedroom. He resists, pulls out of his shirt, and runs out the front door. She, being humiliated and embarrassed and frightened by the whole thing, cooks up a story. This is all in chapter 39, by the way. We didn't look at it, but we looked at it in the past. She cooks up this story when her husband gets home and she says, Do you know what that, that, that slave from Israel of yours did? Why? Why, he tried to rape me. Made fun of me. Made sport of me. So Potiphar believes his wife, and Joseph is off to jail. Now, that's Potiphar's wife. Now, there's a big problem in Egypt, and Joseph is the big guy. You think she went? You think she went to Joseph? You know, I want to suggest that she didn't. But I, don't, I can't prove that. I know that. But I want to suggest, just for the sake of argument, that she didn't go. And you know why she wouldn't have gone? One of two reasons. First of all, there would be a certain fear, I think, on the part of her, on part of his wife, because she would think, oh my goodness, after all I've done, he'll never accept me. 
I mean, you know those bad, bad, bad things that I've done? Why, he won't give me any food. Who told you that? Pharaoh didn't tell you that. Joseph didn't tell you that. Where where'd you, where'd you hear that? But see, guys, sin can so numb the soul that we come to the conclusion that we're too far gone. Nobody extends mercy to people like me. I've gone too far. Who told you that? Jesus didn't tell you that. It's not found in this book. But the great enemy of your soul would have you to believe that. Because anything that will keep you away from going to Jesus, he wants you to believe. And he'll continue to lie to you and tell you whatever will work. Guys, um, if you've been told that there's not enough grain in the granaries for you, don't you believe it? You just go on over to Joseph's place. Gang, eventually in this story, we're not going to look at it, but eventually in this story, Joseph is going to open up the granaries and he was going to feed the very people that tried to kill him. If he'll feed them, he'll feed you. There's plenty of, the, there's plenty of grain for you. And you are urged. Go. There's plenty of grain for you. The other thing that might have kept her away, as other than fear, is is pride. <laughs> yeah, well, that little snip, the one that used to work for me. No, I'm not going to give him the pleasure of seeing me beg. Why, I'd rather die. That, that, that despised, rejected Jewish slave hand, you're telling me that he's now my passport to life? Ha, not me. Who, who needs him? He doesn't remember who I am. That might have done it too. Maybe it was pride, maybe it was fear, maybe it was a sense of not having any needs. But it keeps people from seeing how beautifully clear this is. That's what blinds us. That's at least a partial list of the things that blind people from spiritual truth. Too much. Fear. And pride. And one more thing and I'm done. I, I want to I I close by showing you what is it that enables us to see spiritual truth. And that's, that's my third point. Um, don't turn here. Let me just read this to you. There's, a, there's one verse that I want to read you out of the New Testament, out of 1 Corinthians 2. Don't, don't turn. Let me just read it. Listen to this. It says this. 
The natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Did you hear that? There's, there's something in there, that there's several things in there that you need to know, guys. Quickly. The natural man. That man is the man who has not yet been born from above. He's, in theological terms, he's unregenerate. He is, um, he's not tasted the, 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 the new birth. He's not born again. That man, the natural man, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Why? There's a bunch of foolishness to him. And then listen to this. And he is not able to understand them. Oh my. You see, my state of being, or my being in the state of unregeneracy makes me incapable of seeing and understanding and grasping spiritual truth. And this last clause says, because they, that is spiritual truth, is spiritually discerned. Um, guys, do you know why you see it? I mean, do you see it? Do you know why you see it? Do you know why that you have been awakened to your own need? And seen your need? Do you know why that you've overcome your silly pride? Do you know why you're so assured that there is forgiveness available to you? Well, because the Spirit of God has opened your eyes to see it clearly. And because He has, we run. We don't walk. We run to this Christ of ours. Because when the light from above begins to dawn on our famished souls, an earthquake takes place in the center of our being. And the whole fabric of that delusion that I can make it on my own, that I'm good enough to earn it, that I'm very much a prize in heaven. That delusion is destroyed. And I discover that what a famine will do to the body, sin has done to my soul. And so I run. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, there is bread enough to spare in Jesus Christ, but no place else. What is it that keeps you away? There are no other hands that distribute mercy other than Jesus's. And in this Savior of ours, there is an inexhaustible supply of mercy and grace and forgiveness. And for us who have been born of the Spirit, a herd of wild horses couldn't keep us away. Gang, what Joseph was to the men of his day, that and so much more is Jesus to us. 
need to know this. People in Joseph's day starved because for whatever reasons, they refused to go to Joseph. If you perish eternally, it will be because you refuse to eat. Father, I pray that you will uh, alert us once again of the great damage that prosperity can do to our souls. So much so that it will make us think that we don't have any needs and that we're hot shots and that we're, that we're intelligent and we're better and we're high-minded and all of that contributing to our own soul's demise. And I pray, O oh God, by the power of the Spirit of God, that you will awaken people to their needs this very second. And that they might see that there is only one place to get mercy and forgiveness. And it's in Christ Jesus the Lord. Thank you, O oh God, that so many of us in this room have eyes that have been opened. It wasn't because we were smarter. It wasn't because we were better. It wasn't because we were more accomplished or better educated. It was because of grace. Sovereign, matchless, inexhaustible grace. And we stand here today as forgiven men and women. Because you opened our eyes to see the beauty of our Savior. And the ugliness of our own sin. So Father, to God be the glory for all that you've done. Do it again. Do it more. Do it in our community. Do it in this room. Do it amongst our youth. Cause people to see how desperately they need the New Testament Joseph, Jesus of Nazareth. We pray, of course, in his name.